The time has come, so turn up the sound. It's time for Buried Broadway. Hiya. Hello. I'm Jen Beverelli. And I'm Mikey Beverelli. And welcome to Buried Broadway. Where we discover, dissect, and demystify forgotten Broadway musicals. That we most likely found on vinyl for a dollar. So, Mikey... Yes, Jen? I had a pretty good birthday. Want to know why? Why? Because we got one new Patreon member for my birthday. Awesome! So thank you to our newest blooper boo, Colin Davies. We love Colin. We do. He made my birthday extra special. Remember to follow Buried Broadway on Instagram and Facebook for more trivia and photos about today's show. And to see all of the citations and resources we use to research this episode, become a bookworm brain on our Patreon for just $4 a month. And to hear our blooper reel for this episode, you can become a blooper boo for $8 a month at patreon.com backslash buried broadway. And we are going to put up a special little video we made for a friend's online cabaret show for Valentine's Day, and that will be accessible to all Patreon members, no matter what level you are. So even if you give $1 a month, that is $12 a year, that is like two Starbucks drinks, or one if you are like me and put all the extra stuff in it. (laughs) But anyway, you can... Get access to that video if you go to, again, patreon.com backslash buried broadway, or you can go to the link on our website. If you want to get in touch, just follow this address. It's B-E-V-A-R-E-L-L-I dot com. Now, normally, we hop along into our show at this point and give you some statistics, but we have a little bit more to share with you. Our friends over at the Story Song Podcast reached out to us to give us a little taste of what they do. So, basically, you know that part of our show where we're like, our favorite lyric is yada yada. Well, that's the entire podcast. They take one song and they talk about it for one whole podcast. It's awesome. So, here's a little bit more. Music. Everyone loves it. But who listens to the lyrics? We do. She doesn't live in a shantytown. She lives in capital S shantytown. (laughs) You put patches from old shantytown on a resume, (laughs) you're not getting that job. You know what I mean? On the Story Song Podcast, we break down the lyrics you've heard a thousand times. Go to Barnes & Noble, 20 bucks, farming for dummies. Right. (laughs) Chapter one, don't farm at night. Chapter two, don't farm in the winter. (laughs) Yeah, the index is just like blizzard. See also, don't. We also look at the history of the song. So the monster mash is on the R&B jazz. (laughs) Clearly it should be on the monster chart. (laughs) Oh, it was was number one on the monster chart. The Story Song Podcast. Find it wherever you download podcasts. That was a fun commercial. Check them out. They sound like a great group of kids. (laughs) I'm sure they're the exact same age as us. Probably. Anyway, what show are we doing today? Today, we are doing the musical Rex with music by Richard Rogers, lyrics by Sheldon Harnick, and libretto by Sherman Yellen. 
based on the life of King Henry VIII. It's I'm the- Henry VIII, <laughs> I am. Henry VIII, I am, I am. I got married to the widow next door. She's been married several times before. If everyone was Hen- anyone stop me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that song's going to be in my head for, well, until we start listening to music. Henry VIII, I am. <laughs> Second verse, same oh as the first. Okay, I'm gonna stop it right there. I'll try not to burst into that every <laughs> single time you say his name, but it's gonna be hard. <laughs> also, if this seems like a precursor to six, it kind of is. Only it's six without the wives. It's weird. It's like the opposite, Very but odd. the same. Mm-hmm. So we bought this record at like we do many of our other records, a store called Miss Pixies in Washington, D.C. I love Miss Pixies. Me you sh- too. You should definitely check them out. I actually do have a specific memory of finding this there because when I pulled it out and I saw that it was a musical called Rex, I thought, firstly, that it was an Oedipus musical. Mm-hmm, I um, remember that. Which was completely incorrect. Um, but then for a split second, I thought that it was maybe a musical about a Tyrannosaurus. Uh, I, you did not share that with me at the time. (laughs) You kept that thought to yourself. But then, I mean, I guess. I mean, the cover is green. I will say that, but it's obviously a man. Well, it isn't obviously a man because I couldn't tell what it was at first. I thought it was just a bunch of colors. Okay. Well, go to our Instagram and you tell us, do you see a man or do you see a (laughs) T-Rex? Wait. Is there any way you could see a T-Rex in this? No. Judge for yourselves. You, you, We will post the cover. Uh-huh. I thought you were going to say that I started dancing around to Henry VIII. <laughs> but you, I don't think we knew what it was about no. because the it was sealed, I think. It was sealed. And the back doesn't have... It's a one of the records, I don't know if it's called like a gatefold or like the middle cover or... But basically all of the interior was where all the information was and all of the uh summary that we were going to read for you was tucked away in there so it was a mystery until we brought it home and ripped it open (laughs) i have such a mix of emotions when i open a record that has been sealed for decades right but we have to do it because we have to listen to it right can't just look at it but see, that is the kind of stuff that you find at Miss Pixies. Those like treasures that you kind of want to keep the way they were when you found them, mm-hmm. but also ones that you actually want to use in real life. They have a lot of cool furniture and cool little knickknacks and diddly bobs and thingamajigs and who's it and what's it's galore. It's a magical place. It truly is. <laughs> and if you want to just see what the heck we're talking about. They have a pretty awesome Instagram as well. Yes. So moving on to the show, Rex opened on Broadway on April 25th, 1976, and closed on June 5th, 1976, after 14 previews and 49 regular performances at the Lunt Fontan Theater. We have seen one of our most recent favorite shows that is kind of getting forgotten, Finding Neverland there, as well as the rockin' Donna Summer musical. You mean Summer, the Donna Summer musical. All right, all right. <laughs> Lunt Fontan was originally named the Globe Theater in honor of the Globe Theater in London. So they had a Globe Theater, a new Globe Theater in New Amsterdam, in New York, 
Oh. My brain hurts. It originally was the only theater to have a retractable roof. This made it feel open, like its namesake, the globe, but it also helped with cooling in the summertime. It was actually never used due to debris sitting on the roof and falling in when they opened it. New York City. Am I right? <laughs> Could you imagine, though, like watching Phantom and they're singing like, I don't know, music of the night and the bird poops on your head? <laughs> I mean, I guess. I don't know why that's my, my thing. Because <laughs> pigeons are real. Seriously. Now, this theater also had vents under each seat, which led to a room with ice to help cool the audience on hot days, and it would be heated by hot air during cold days. Okay, now that sounds baller, and they should probably still do that. Yes, a vent under every single seat. Ooh, I love it. Can you just imagine, like, your little tootsies? Well, I guess if my tootsies were that warm, I might fall asleep, because I'd be so comfy. (laughs) Like a little baby. The Globe was converted to a movie theater in the 30s before turning back into a theater on May 5th, 1958, and named in honor of actor couple Alfred Lunt and Lynn Fontaine. To christen their new theater, the pair starred in The Visit, which is the play the Kandran Ebb musical was based off of. Rex had its out-of-town tryouts at the Playhouse Theater in Wilmington, Delaware, the Kennedy Center Opera House, our old friend, in (laughs) Washington, D.C., and at the Schubert Theater in Boston. Other shows playing on Broadway at the time include The Wiz in its second year, A Chorus Line at the beginning of its second year, Chicago in its second year, Shenandoah, Bubbling Brown Sugar, A Revival of My Fair Lady with George Rose. And Pacific Overtures, which you can hear more about in the episode of the Wines and Dolls podcast that we guested on. Rex the Musical, unfortunately, did not win any Tony Awards. It wasn't even nominated. Nope, not even one. Mm -mm. So you might have heard the name Richard Rogers when we were introducing this. Yes, he did write the music to this show. And he happens to be our first repeat artist. So we talked about him a bit during episode four, two by two. But we are going to give you a little more background on him this go around. He was born on June 28, 1902 in Queens, New York to Jewish parents, Mamie and Dr. William Abrahams Rogers. Unlike many others we have covered on this podcast, he was actually born with the name Richard Rogers. Yeah, but his father changed the family name from Rogozinski to Rogers, so still counts. I guess, but he didn't do it. (laughs) He started piano at age six and eventually was known to buy the sheet music to the Broadway shows his parents would see and play it for them at home. So cute. He started composing music of his own in his high school years. He went to Columbia University and was introduced to Lawrence Hart, his first main collaborator. Now, side note, Oscar Hammerstein II also attended Columbia at the same time, studying law before dropping out. Well, Richard Rogers dropped out of Columbia after three years to study composing full-time at the Institute of Musical Art, which is now called the Juilliard School. The duo of Rogers and Hart started by writing multiple flops before their song Any Old Place With You was included in the Broadway musical A Lonely Romeo. 
1925, when Rogers and Hart were about to throw in the towel, the theater guild, called the Garrick Gaieties, featured a number of their songs, and they were positively received. They went on to write musicals both on Broadway and the West End for the next few years, including The Girlfriend, Peggy Ann, and A Connecticut Yankee, before trying out Hollywood in 1932. This didn't work out so well, but the pair did end up writing a few songs for films. In 1935, they returned to Broadway and continued to write hits, including On Your Toes, Babes in Arms, The Boys from Syracuse, Pal Joey, and their last piece, By Jupiter, in 1942. The partnership ended with Lawrence Hart's death in 1943 at the age of only 48. Even before Lawrence Hart died, their relationship was strained because of his unreliability due to alcoholism, and Richard Rogers turned to working with Oscar Hammerstein, churning out the huge hit Oklahoma in 1943. Hmm, that was the same year that Hart died. Did breaking up with Richard Rogers kill him? <laughs> the world will never know. Quite suspect. JK, probably not. <laughs> Success followed the new pair with Carousel in 1945, South Pacific in 1949, The King and I in 1951, and The Sound of Music in 1959. All huge hits that were made into equally successful movies. Also, because we are us, we have to mention their lesser-known shows, Allegro, Me and Juliet, and Pipe Dream, but we will cover them all down the line. The partnership ended in 1960 with Oscar Hammerstein's death. Hmm. Rogers really goes through his partners, and they all end up dying. (laughs) Coincidence? I think... Yes, probably. (laughs) (laughs) We're turning into a true crime uh, podcast. (laughs) Can you imagine? (laughs) (laughs) Uncovering this mystery. Rogers pressed on with the first and only show where he wrote both music and lyrics, which was No Strings, in 1962. He continued to work with different lyricists, because he killed them all. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Including Sondheim on Do I Hear a Waltz in 1965. Sheldon Harnick in Rex, which is the show we're about to talk about. And Martin Sharnan on 2x2 two two in 1970, which we talked about in episode 4. And I Remember Mama in 1979, his final show. Richard Rogers died on December 30th, 1979. As we mentioned in our 2x2 two two episode, but we have to mention it again because it's just important. Mm-hmm. His daughter is Mary Rogers, who wrote the music to Once Upon a Mattress, and his grandson is Adam Gettle, who wrote Light in the Piazza and Floyd Collins. Richard Rogers is the very first person to get the EGOT, which is the Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony win. He won the Emmy one time, a Grammy twice, an Oscar one time, and a Tony nine times. That's amazing! He also won two Pulitzers, which technically makes him a Pigot. Which is even better! And a Kennedy Center Honors in 1978. I, I don't want to add those acronyms on there. I don't think that that puts, that doesn't go in there. No, no. It would be like a Kuchpigot. <laughs> so now that we've all had a rapid fire refresher on Richard Rogers, we can finally get into the show. On to the overture. 
but it's actually called Overture and Tedium. What is that? Well, upon a quick Google search, <laughs> Tedium is Latin for you gods. Oh. So Overture and you gods. Hmm. I'm intrigued. Me too. And confused. I'm not really confused. I feel like all of these kings always end up talking to God at one point or another. Mm -hmm. I didn't expect it so soon. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. The horn section. But I was not expecting so many tambourines. It does feel very uh, Renfest. Maybe people are doing some sort of dance. Yeah. With a tambourine around a maypole. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Maybe there's people on stage doing it. There, are, there is singing at the end. Yeah. So I'm sure they come on stage at some point. Unless it's... Pit singers. Yeah. That'd be weird. <laughs> they are doing some weird prayer. Yes. There's, they're using such pure vowels that I can't fully understand them. No clue. But... I looked up more in Te Diem, and it's a very joyful Latin praising God hymn. Okay, so, so. that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Moving on. Yes, let us begin. In the year 1520 in France, Henry VIII, King of England, and Francis I, King of France, decide to meet to foster peace between their countries. The castles chosen to house King Henry and his 5,000 staff aren't suitable for a king's lodging, so a gigantic ornate tent is raised. The plans for the historic meeting are so lavish that they name it the Field of Cloth of Gold. What? The Field of Cloth of Gold. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of ofs. As Henry is in his tent, he edits his latest song and asks his minstrel, Mark Smeaton, to sing it. Smeaton? Yes, and he sings the song, No Song More Pleasing. Sing me a song that surges and flows, whose melody soars, whose harmony glows. However warm that melting air, no song you sing can half compare with my lover's tender teasing, her tender teasing, loving love. I like that guy's voice. It is very nice. It is interesting that Henry doesn't sing it himself, but I like hearing this other man sing it. Well, I think he doesn't sing it himself because it would be too nice of a song for him to sing. Yeah, I think right off the bat, too, because of what we know of Henry VIII, or at least what we learn in uh, history class. You don't want to hear Henry be like, hmm. I love women. Exactly. Love song, love song. I'd be like, you're a dirty scumbag. I mean, I am. Like, you're a dirty <laughs> scumbag. So I don't fully believe that he wrote this song. I, I'm not mad about this. No. 
When the king learns many young ladies are close by, he is eager for instant companionship. He tells Smeaton to play quickly if he's dancing with an aged lady, and very slowly if the lady is young. Oh, gross. <laughs> Which, so when I first read this, uh, I was like, shouldn't he play slower for an aged lady and quicker for a young lady? Because, you know. Kindness? Yes, for kindness. <laughs> but, like, I, I, I understand this now. <laughs> Can you imagine he's playing really fast and the old lady's like, oh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> yes. Will Summers, the jester, cracks wise about what Henry wants to do with the pretty ones, which does not amuse Cardinal Wolsey. Wolsey tries to discuss plans for the treaty, but Henry wants no part of that. He is most concerned about the betrothal plans for his daughter, Princess Mary. Mary doesn't like the idea of marrying the Dauphin. He's only ten. Hen Ew. <laughs> Henry reminds her that she won't have to, quote, do it for years. Ew. And commands her to smile for England. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> the King of England and the King of France express their own private attitudes. Despite those, the two courts approach each other and the meeting begins. And this actually leads to two songs listed on this in a row? Yes. Okay. But maybe one of these songs was like in the action, but this is where it's listed in the al on the album. Okay. So the two songs are At the Field of Cloth of Gold. Uh-huh. And Where is My Son? Oh, where is my son? Oh, where? Okay. No one knows that. <laughs> that is from Veggie Tales. You're welcome. Someone knows it. <laughs> Francis of France, I greet you. At last, here we stand face to face. All hail, brother king, I salute you. Soon we'll exchange a fervent public, purely fictitious embrace. Then let the royal games take place. Hail, visiting king from England, I welcome you warmly to France. French ways, I've been told, don't amuse you. Patience, my friend, we'll throw you out as soon as we get the chance. On guard, Francis of France, are you ready? Most high and mighty prince, are you braced? I've spent half the winter preparing to joust you into a jelly, to wrestle you into a pace, to outhunt you, outwalk you, outthink you, outtalk you, outdrink you, outdance you, you arrogant lily of France, you, with your graces and your women and your son. Poor man, all of Europe knows how much he wants a son. Francis of France has a son. Charles of Spain has a son. Henry of England has a daughter. I wanted a son, just one living son, but God gave us none. Catherine, we've knelt and implored in prayer after prayer. You know my despair. Catherine, where is the face, where is the voice in which I begin to see and hear echoes of my own? Where is the vessel of my blood who will bear a name on the throne? Well, that was actually three songs turned into one song on the record, but titled as two songs. 
and I would say that the two songs are flipped if you're going to call them two separate songs based on the track listing. Yeah, I don't fully understand. Why don't we just name it one song and say that it has internal movements? That's how I'm going to view it because otherwise my brain hurts. And we can call it the Field of Cloth of Gold. Mm, we can just <laughs> change that. That would be good. We can call it the French meet the English. I like that. In a field. Don't even worry about the cloth or the gold. <laughs> <laughs> but I do like the first movement the most. It's fun. Where the two kings meet each other. And then they have these very veiled insults but they're not super veiled, where they're like, I hate your fucking guts. I hate your guts as well. Good day to you, sir. Right this way to the tea room. And both so manly, I'm better than you. Oh, yes, definitely. Until the sun. Yes. And that's when Henry's like, maybe you are better than me. Yeah, I thought that Francis would bring that part up first. But actually, (laughs) Henry is just so freaking pissed about it that he brings up how jealous he is first Mm -hmm. he can't even hold it in he can't even put a veil on how incredibly jealous he is the second movement is interesting to me i don't like it as much but it is interesting because it makes it seem that him and catherine of aragon are kind of a team like he says catherine a million times and a part we didn't play for you is where he says, like, what have we done wrong? Why didn't we get a son? So it makes it seem like he's just in this relationship where bad things are happening to them. Whereas kind of what we've learned in history class is that he wasn't that way. And it was more of a situation of, well, what's wrong with you? Mm -hmm. Why didn't you give me a healthy son? you broken woman. He does say that she's past her child-rearing years in the song, which is kind of funny. But, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, not funny, haha, even though we just laughed, but, like, funny, like, rude. Yeah, super rude. And it's interesting. I didn't even catch that we language. You you saw that immediately. It's because I'm a woman. Yes. We. A we woman. (laughs) (laughs) Shall we continue? Yes. Francis ribs Henry about the fact he has no sons. I think that Henry kind of laid himself open on the ground, but okay. (laughs) Henry doesn't like the needling at all, but he doesn't mind when he meets Anne Boleyn, an English beauty attached to the French court who translates for Francis's wife, Queen Claude. Anxious to show off, Henry challenges Francis to a wrestling match and loses. Henry is livid but he is calmed by Queen Claude, who thanks him for his gallantry in letting Francis win. He fences verbally with Anne and invites her to his tent for the night. She rejects him. Yes, good girl. But while dancing together, Henry presses the invitation. Catherine of Aragon unhappily watches all of this. Her wifely relationship with Henry is almost non-existent, and she sings... As once I loved you. Oh, yay, a girl. Yeah. I actually wasn't expecting a girl song so soon. Especially because Catherine came out of absolutely nowhere. All of a sudden, <laughs> like, they have a spotlight on a random girl in the corner and she's singing this song and everyone's like, who is that? But maybe that's symbolic. She is kind of nowhere. And everywhere. Yes. Apparently, she sees all. <laughs> oh, this is going to be sad. How many shirts have I made you through the years? 
a sad sack of a song sad sack is that a right term i think so i'm just gonna say it, it she a, is a sad sack yeah she's a sad sock sing- sad <laughs> sock sad sock oh no she is a sad sack singing a song it's a really long song too it is you guys got an abridged version you got the bridge and the chorus <laughs> there's a lot more oh thank you <laughs> i like the bridge, I have questions. Okay. Number one, she starts off with saying, how many shirts did I sew you through the years? Maybe none. I'm going to have to say, <laughs> the man is a king. You are queen. I really don't see you sitting around being a seamstress all no. day. I'm pretty sure he has servants to sew his shirts. Anyway, also, the rhyming is non-existent <laughs> at the beginning of this. He tries to rhyme year with ill. I don't know if there's a pronunciation <laughs> problem or if I'm just not getting it on why we're not rhyming those words because it seems like they should rhyme. Because then later we go through a list of hand, side, on, which then rhymes with gone. He just rhymes the last part of that list, on and gone. But the years and ill... I don't know. It hurt my brain, but maybe it's supposed to. Maybe she's, like, too forlorn to rhyme. I was thinking that, too. Like, it's it's a sad song, and it makes me feel really low, but I think that's kind of the point, right? So the non-rhyming is supposed to make me angry for her? <laughs> maybe. Maybe. It elicited an emotion from me, <laughs> and I'm wondering if that was purposeful or if I'm just a brat. Let's just say it's purposeful. <laughs> okay. <laughs> In general, though, she's ma- a pretty voice. Yes. Made me feel sad. Job done. Let's move on. Months have passed. Henry has fallen passionately in love with Anne, mm-hmm. but she refuses to become his mistress. Mm. Anne only wants to become queen. The astrologer, Komu, is in his laboratory searching for some pagan magic that will lure Anne to the court. Will tells him not to worry. No young woman can resist the king for long. Anne is back at Hevercastle, Kent. I'm just going to go ahead and say, look up a picture of Henry VIII, (laughs) and then you tell me if any woman can resist him, because I'm going to go ahead and say, yeah, I can resist that. (laughs) But everything online said that he was very handsome and very charming. But maybe there were different standards? Definitely, definitely. Mm Mm-hmm. Anne is back at Hevercastle, Kent, the home of the Boleyn family. 
Henry is writing songs to her and making excuses and efforts to run into her. Will, Komu, Smeaton, and other court gentlemen have their own observations about what's going on. They sing about it in a song called The Chase. Ooh, I'm excited. I feel like this is all the character boys yes. in one song. <laughs> and we all know how I feel about character boys. I hope they live up to your expectations. Me too. He's riding along, his senses alert, excitement beginning to rise. A quarry appears. He stifles a gas. A duty. My God, a prize. She's looking at him, he's looking at her, and then with a bound, she's gone. He utters a shout. He's hot in pursuit. The chase is on. conflicted did it not live up to your expectations well here's the thing i don't know why i thought i was going to really enjoy the contents of this song (laughs) knowing what it was about beforehand but i didn't like the contents of the song (laughs) it's kind of funny but the packaging is good like the men are hilarious i love their voices Mm -hmm. i love the song like the tempo is adorable the song is adorable the lyrics are adorable (laughs) Which is weird because the contents and the thing they're describing is the most least adorable thing I've ever heard of. Mm-hmm. It's very skeevy and gross. Like if it was a bunch of like bros and you change the setting to the future, it's it's very odd. Right. Putting that into context. Yeah. Like if this was at a frat house and they were like, yeah, and then he stalked her and then like he pinned her in a corner and then he was like, date me. And she was like, I don't want to. And he was like, you're going to do it because I'm the boss. And she was like, "Okay, I guess so. (laughs) And then once she said yes, he dumped her and went out with Veronica instead. Yeah, that's right. Boom. When he wants to do it again, he'll just do it again. Right. Like at the end, they're like, well, when he gets sick of her. The chase is on. Like, <laughs> Is that foreshadowing? I mean, yes. <laughs> Spoiler? No. no probably not. <laughs> but I love these guys. Mm-hmm. I hope that we get to hear them narrate other things in funny ways. Yeah, I hope so too. Well, let's see where this chase goes. I think we know where it goes, but let's let's see what they have to say about it. Okay. Henry meets Anne at her castle gate. If she won't be his mistress, it's her duty to make him stop loving her. Oh my god. (laughs) Why did you wear such a short skirt if you didn't want me to look? You're going to hate this more. Oh god. Quote, be ugly, go bald, he implores. (laughs) If she comes with him, he promises her riches Mm -hmm. and refuses to be bought. Then Henry challenges her to hold his love, to be better than all the other women he has used. (laughs) (laughs) go on Anne decides to come to court but keeps her distance from the king's bed in the meantime 
Smeaton has fallen in love with her and is making his own moves on her. Wait, which one's Mark? Uh, Mark. Mark Smeaton. <laughs> I'm Mark. The minstrel. Mark minstrel, got Mark it. Mark minstrel will jester. That doesn't, that doesn't really, work. No. Smeaton has fallen in love with her and is making his own moves on her when Henry comes upon them and orders Smeaton to leave. Well, yeah, I think that's a pretty big no-no. Yeah. Also, no offense, but you're a minstrel and she's something. Yeah, she's at least rich. <laughs> Henry tells Anne how ridiculous she is making him look to the world by keeping him off. Well, don't tell the world then that you have a mistress, <laughs> you weirdo. Yeah, he is married yeah. already. Anne then reminds him that if she submits, all he would win is a titled whore. She also admits she loves him too. And since Catherine cannot bear him a son, she thinks perhaps it is God's will that Henry should love Anne as his queen. Boom diggity. And they sing Away From You. I would be interested in this as a duet normally, but the whole relationship is wigging me out. So let's see what happens. Yeah. I'm half alive until the moment the door swings open and you walk through. Now my soul is afloat on a wave of music that I could feel such joy I never It's I don't want to, and bracket, be away from you, or something. <laughs> oh wait, the B should be whatever. It, it's it's called away from you, but they don't want to be away from each other. Cool. Are they trying to trick us into liking him? I actually really like this song. Yeah, I do too. But if it was, you know, regular musical theater characters, it would be it would be nice. If it was King Arthur singing this, it'd be fine. This does actually feel like it's from Camelot. It does. Kind of. And I, I, a little bit of it feels like the last month of May. <laughs> but I really like this song because it sounds like I have dreamed from The King and I. Which is one of my favorite songs from that show. Yeah, I like that song. And it has the same format of like, you sing about how much you love me. I'll sing about how much I love you. And then we'll sing together. <laughs> And we had to cut out the verses of them singing about how much they loved each other because, let me tell you, they go on for a while. I think this song is over four minutes long. It is. But it's very beautiful, so go listen to it. I think it's on Spotify. It has a lot of really nice imagery. Again, the rhymes are not wonderful, but I have one that I wrote down. Ooh, I want to hear it. Our moments of warmth are touch and go, love, but tonight we'll touch and stay. <laughs> it's not a rhyme, but it's very play on wordsy. It is. And I kind of like That's it and great. I kind of hate it, which what? makes me like it. Because it's like, why have I never thought of that? That's, that is such an obvious lyric mm-hmm. that has to be in something else, but I've never heard it before. Oh, touch and go, touch and stay. 
it's gosh. good. It's really good. I'm really kind of confused about the general writer's stance of Anne Boleyn, because there's many stances of Anne Boleyn. No one can really agree if she did all whatever things that were written in history, because history is history. No one alive knew her. And it seems like they're going every direction with her. She literally called herself a whore. <laughs> she did. So. <laughs> okay. But we're still supposed to like her. Yes. And root for their love to blossom. Because they have this music to make you feel certain ways. I know. I don't know how I feel. I'm very torn. The music gives me warm and fuzzies, but the people, the people do not. Generally, as a character throughout all of media, I've decided that I like Anne Boleyn. Me too, but I feel like we just feel bad for her. I don't know. History just feels bad for her because she got beheaded spoiler alert and she got buried in like a pauper's grave or an unmarked grave i guess not poppers oh really yeah she's in the tower of london her (sighs) skeleton is like just there with other randos i actually didn't know that (laughs) mikey you were literally right next to me when i watched a documentary about it oh wow okay henry visits Catherine and wants her to petition to the pope for a divorce She says she will agree if Henry renounces the throne and enters the monastery as a monk. That's so much. (laughs) It's it's a lot. (laughs) Mary would then become queen. Their daughter. Yes, their daughter. Enraged, Henry shouts, quote, There can never be a woman on my throne! Exclamation point. Well, I hate to spoil it for (laughs) you. When Catherine asks him to return to her bed and try for another son, he reminds her that all their sons have been born dead. He insists on a divorce. Catherine vows to remain his wife until the day she dies. And I had to look this up, and she was pregnant six times, and she only had one living child. And two of them were boys. They didn't live. It's very sad. Mm Mm-hmm. Cardinal Wolsey meets with Henry and informs him that the Pope has refused his request. Henry pays no attention. His own bishops will grant the divorce, and he himself will become (laughs) Vicar of Christ in England. Vicar of Christ in England. I feel like this is truncating a lot of history, but there you go. Anne enters, and Henry tells her that he will now make her his queen. Nine months later, in the corridor of Hampton Court Palace, Mary storms in. Oh. (laughs) The king has declared her illegitimate, anticipating the birth of a son that night. He wants her to sign an oath of allegiance to the king, acknowledging him as head of her church. She says she cannot forswear her Catholic faith. The king says she is disloyal and must be punished, even though he loves her as a daughter. Just then, courtiers enter to announce that a child is born. It is alive, lusty, bawling. Anne is in bed, the baby in her arms, when Henry walks in. He kisses her, says how happy she has made him, and asks, quote, What shall we call him? Anne answers, Elizabeth. You presumptuous (laughs) asshole. (laughs) Henry is outraged. Tenderly, she tells him they will have sons later. Jane Seymour, Anne's... The only one he truly loves... (laughs) Yes. Anne's lady-in-waiting remarks that although she was first born herself, she was followed by five brothers. Though Henry seems interested in the statistics. (laughs) (laughs) 
Sounds promising, yes. <laughs> Anne sees the intrigue Jane has begun, wondering if she wants to become a royal mistress. Lady Jane is excused, and when Henry leaves, Anne asks for Smeaton to sing a lullaby. Her child must begin life with a song called Elizabeth. Lovely Lizzie, funny Bess, every inch the proud princess. Like her mama, England's queen, and the prettiest lady that e'er I've seen. Blessed forever be the hour that unveiled this royal flower, born to grace her country's throne, born to lullaby the guy gets really loud that about the true. name it, it does start off as a mostly lullaby yeah and after the part that we just ended at it does get pianissimo again mm-hmm. but this baby's not i just felt like you had to hear how loud it was because it was so loud <laughs> if i was a new mom i would be like shut the hell up <laughs> quieter please <laughs> asmr time <laughs> i do like that they go through all the nicknames of Elizabeth that I, I wasn't even aware of some. <laughs> like, there's Bess and there's... Um, Liz, Lizzie. Yeah. I, I guess there's I There's tons those. of them, Beth. Yeah. But yeah, he goes through... At the beginning of it, he lists all the names. He says he doesn't know what to call the little baby because she could go by so many names. Mm-hmm. And then for the rest of the time, he just kind of alternates through those names. It's so cute. I do like how he uses those nicknames to propel forward like rhymes. Like he does Bess and Princess and Liz and Is. <laughs> <laughs> They're really pushing that there is some sort of relationship between Anne and Mark. Historically, Anne did get in trouble for adultery and treason with Mark and, like, four other guys. Um, But many historians don't think this is true. This seems to be taking the stance that there was reason to believe it being true. But, you know, whatever. I wasn't there. You can take whatever stance you want. I mean, at least there's some man in here that I actually enjoy. That's true. So, let's go, Mark. (laughs) I mean, he's adorable, and his little voice is so cute. It is very nice. And he's so sweet to the baby. Mm-hmm. Except for when he's waking her up by screaming her name <laughs> at her. But other than that, this song is so cute. And it does remind me of... I have a little house, and I sell the honey, and the fish I catch, I sell. And in a matter of speaking. This song definitely gets an A-plus for me. Yes. All right, let's move on and probably listen to Henry sing something annoying. (laughs) Henry softens. No, he doesn't. He returns to his wife, picks up the baby, and places an arm around Anne. (laughs) Eye roll. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The birth of a second child is imminent. Komu says the signs point to a son, but also indicates that the queen is in great danger from the birth. Will arrives and says, Her majesty is well. She has been delivered of a son. A dead son. Henry is anguished and rants to the heavens, convinced his god has turned away from him. He did kind of create his own church. (laughs) Yes, he did. By this point, just saying. He sings the song, Why? Question mark. (laughs) (laughs) 
And now he sits and wonders why God raised his father up so high. Since father was crowned a king, oh Lord, only 50 years have passed. Why make him a king, the first Tudor king, and make his son the last? Why let it end with me, oh Lord? Is it all to end with me, oh Lord? Why? 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 This song reminds me of God Rest You Merry Gentlemen also mixed with carousel soliloquy yes but not successfully a hundred percent well why because it's boring it's not as good as either of those <laughs> songs yeah it feels like someone said hey we need to include some historical background on this character to give him depth so what we didn't play for you was that historical background up to now, <laughs> all while speaking in the third person. On a slight positive, I didn't completely hate the song. Nicole Williamson sounds good. Well, more time has passed. Anne finds Henry alone with Jane. Ah! Upset at the carryings on, the queen wants Jane sent back to her family. Henry asks what kind of love Anne can offer him. Constant rages, broken promises, stillborn sons. Whoa, whoa. Mm -hmm. Asshole. Anne reminds him of their daughter, Elizabeth, and Henry's anger subsides. (laughs) He's like, oh yeah, her. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, that little (laughs) thing we had. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He is stunned, however, when Anne asks for his love. She wants them all to go to the country to avoid the plague. (laughs) Seems reasonable. (laughs) it's a very reasonable request henry says he can't leave the court because of his regal duties also reasonable and when he learns that she has assumed kingly power without authority his anger is monumental and he tells her their marriage is cursed by god okay whoa 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 what did she do i'm very confused by this sentence and i had to read it a bunch what i think is this is saying is he's mad that she has made a decision and like wants to go against what he thinks. Elizabeth enters and playfully climbs on the throne. Henry immediately orders a nurse to take her off. Anne reminds him that if Henry cannot give her sons, Elizabeth will be queen. Henry storms out, leaving her distraught, and she sings the song, So Much You Loved Me. Gone is the warming fire That lasting love has passed us by as a star can fall from the sky. So can love undying die. This song sounds like Cinderella. It does. It sounds like 
in my own little corner. Anywho, this song is nice. Yeah, I liked it a lot. It was a little repetitive. For sure. I wish that there were actually two different verses. It repeats more than just the refrain. It repeats like verse refrain, which is fine. I don't know. It's an oddly formatted song, but it's still really nice. At points it did remind me of Gentleman's Guide. I can see that. And I love these glimpses into people's minds. I like Anne Boleyn, and this song helped me like her more. I do think it is kind of cool that, I mean, I'm predicting. I don't know because you know Mikey and I don't. I'm predicting that this is Anne Boleyn's last sung line, and it is the word die, which is (laughs) spooky. So, yeah, their love died and then (laughs) so did she not yet oh well she will (laughs) let's see how much longer she has on stage are we still in act one we are oh geez Anne asks for mark smeaton but is told that he has been taken to the tower accused of committing adultery with the queen oh no the embittered Anne turns around to find two guards who have now come to take her to the tower herself. Will thinks the king will pardon her and tries to comfort her, but Anne knows better. She is beheaded. Oh, wow. That's okay. it. <laughs> okay. I thought, oh man, this was a very good opportunity for there to be a love song, and that can be in any definition of love because love comes in many forms, mm-hmm. between Mark and and Anne in the tower they could be in different rooms just singing and hoping the other person hears them well within hours Henry marries Jane Seymour hours historically actually it was 30 days but (laughs) in this musical within hours Henry marries Jane Seymour as servants begin to undress Jane in the king's bedroom Komu appears with a potion the king has ordered to ensure the birth of a male Jane confesses that her family pressed her to entice the king. Henry is tired. Girl, don't tell <laughs> no. random people that. You just got there and you're... Uh. No, no. And in this story, only hours ago, his old wife was alive with a head. And now <laughs> neither of those things are true. No. And you're just going off and telling people that you don't really love the king. Good idea, genius. Super dumb. Henry is tired of intrigues. As she climbs aboard the wedding bed, she asks how she may please him. Ew. Quote, simply close your eyes and pray for a son. I mean. <laughs> a son is born. Jane dies in childbirth. So time was like. Ta- time has passed. <laughs> yes, yes. Now Prince Edward is to be fully protected. No one may approach the cradle without a signed permit from the king himself. Each morsel of food must be tasted, and no one exposed to the plague may come near him. The Duke of Norfolk announces that Parliament has confirmed the illegitimacy of Elizabeth and removed her from the line of secession to the throne. The intrigues to find a new bride for Henry now begin. Cromwell talks of an alliance between France and Spain that spells danger and mentions the fact that the German Prince of Cleves has a daughter, a Protestant and a beauty. Norfolk introduces his young niece, Lady Catherine Howard. It all makes Henry laugh. Ha ha ha. All he commands is, bring me my son. End of act one. What? (laughs) This is the first no act one finale. I feel like we should play that song. Let's all go to the lobby. And it's like popcorn popcorn soda. 
And a, a candy bar? A hot dog. Hot That's dog. it. <laughs> All right. So, actually. So, I hope you got your popcorn and your hot dog. <laughs> yep. It's now Christmas. Oh. Oh, wow. We could have done this at Christmas. Yeah, we could have. Well, oh, well. Oh, well. Actually, I don't think I would want to do this (laughs) at Christmas. (laughs) Merry Christmas. You've been beheaded. Yes. It is Christmas at Hampton Court nine years later. In the interim, Henry married Anne of Cleves. Mm -hmm. The marriage allegedly was never consummated and was soon annulled. Mm-hmm. He also married Lady Catherine Howard, mm-hmm. but learning of her adulterous past, ordered her beheaded. Finally, he married the widow Catherine Parr. So now we're at sixth wife. We skipped. We just to... like sped through those. They didn't get a song. They didn't even get to say hello. No. They didn't even get to sing. Yeah, we completely skipped through these wives. We're at Catherine Parr, third Catherine. The three royal children: nine-year-old Edward, an adolescent Elizabeth. And now mature Mary. No, but they're not the royal children anymore because two of them have been declared illegitimate. That's true. So you're confusing, narrator. Mm -hmm. The Herald announces them, and they sing the song Christmas at Hampton Court. they're at the palace? Yeah, they're all there at Hampton Court. I'm sorry, when I get declared illegitimate, I'm not coming for Christmas. (laughs) That's not how it works, Dad. Well, this should be cute, I guess. Yeah. Children. Well... And a mature Mary. Mature makes it seem like she's 80. She's probably she, like 20 she, years old. Yeah, she's just not a child. Oh, father, make this a Christmas I'll never forget. Greet me as though I am someone you've met. Father, be a man and show me you know who I am. God knows the battles we fought within the religious arena. Be pray as I ought, and Father, I vow, I'll make you an endless novena. Christmas at Hampton Court, where we can be a family again. Christmas at Hampton Court, the season with a minimum of strain. Father will smile his fatherly smile, and we can all be close for a while, delighting in the merriment and sport. So this is really different. It's joyful. It has children. Children? I I don't think we've seen any children yet. Unless... We did, but not in song. Not in song. And if they were singing before, they were just part of the the crowd of thousands. In a crowd of thousands. I knew you'd pick up on that. But honestly, I think the only actual child is the boy. That is correct. But, fun fact... Someone you know just sang the solo that you just heard, and if you don't want to be spoiled and you want to go back and listen, I would go back probably about 60 seconds. So, go back now. Okay, if you didn't go back, that's fine. We're going to tell you who it was. (laughs) So, the woman that you heard sing that solo at the beginning was none other than... Glenn Close! Usually we save those fun tidbits till the end, but because this is her one line, (laughs) (laughs) we thought we'd tell you now while it's still fresh in your mind. You can kind of hear the Norma Desmond Sunset Boulevard in her voice a little bit. Richard Rogers didn't want her to be cast in a bigger role. Yes, I remember reading that she initially auditioned for the... Anne Boleyn track. 
Yep. Apparently, he said that her voice just wasn't strong enough. And it didn't really matter that she didn't book Anne Boleyn because she got the role of Mary. Well, I mean, I think it mattered to her paycheck and her ego, but (laughs) it's fine. (laughs) She still got in the show, which I'm sure many, many other people did not. For sure. So she should be grateful for what she got. (laughs) I'm sure she was. Any hoodaloo. This song is adorable. It reminds me a lot of... There's a sad sort of clanging from the clock in the hall. It was a fun ditty. Puts me in the Christmas mood. Only ten months till Christmas. Oh, jeez. Will Summers appears. He has been designated Master of the Revels. Master of the Revels. And the, <laughs> and the three children embrace him. When Henry enters, Mary kisses him. Elizabeth does the same and presents him with a book. A Bible she translated into Latin, French, and Italian. Henry's main concern is Edward. He asks him about all the things he's learned. He also has gifts for him. Norfolk announces the arrival of King Francis of France, who will join his majesty shortly. And this leads to the song, The Wee Golden Warrior. The Wee Golden <laughs> Warrior. Yes. This is to funny to nowhere. me. Sir Clarence the Brave, Sir Lawrence the Bold, Sir Terence the Bolder, Sir Hector the Victor, Sir Victor the Younger, and Sir Younger the Older. I'm dying fast, but be not sad when I lie dead before you. I leave an heir, a stalwart lad, the wee golden warrior. The wee golden warrior. A knight so brave he'll challenge two or three or even four of you. The bravest knight I ever knew. The wee golden warrior. The wee golden warrior. Knights had bloody fights, not one had battles gorier than him in whom my heart delights. The wee golden warrior. The wee golden well, now that Mark is dead, rest in peace. All I have left is Will, and he does not disappoint. <laughs> I also won't confuse the two anymore. Well, yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> and I like this fun, like, show within a show. So they're doing a mask. Which I think is kind of like a pantomime. Mm-hmm. And Edward is acting the part of the the wee golden warrior. The wee golden warrior! I also really like how this song reminds me of <laughs> the... This is so stupid. The drinking song that they do in Whose Line Is It Anyway? <laughs> and for those of you who don't know, it goes... And then at the end, everyone has to repeat the last ver- thing that the person said. Mm-hmm. I don't know. If you haven't seen it, just Google it. Yeah. It just reminds me of that. And it's funny to me. <laughs> and probably just to me and Mikey. I don't know. During the mask, Will helps Edward act the part of hero, freeing the two captive princesses. <sighs> the Arthurian romance culminates in a dance between the masked Henry and Elizabeth. She innocently steals attention from her brother by her graceful and enthusiastic dancing. Henry admires her verve, but is annoyed by her superiority. He cheers the antics of his son. The king is suddenly serious. He insists that Mary sign an oath of allegiance and oh, geez, end the this possibility. Again. <laughs> it's like oh, I thought we were over this new problem. I just again. came for Christmas. I thought we weren't doing politics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it, it was just bubbling up inside of him. He just had to say something. Yep. 
to ruin Christmas. He insists that Mary signs an oath of allegiance and end the possibility of a Catholic plot that would use her against Edward. Finally, she scribbles her name. It is Christmas, after all. Exactly. Now the king's only annoyance seems to be Elizabeth. It is her sense of authority and self-confidence that upsets him. Damn it! (laughs) Francis I is now a stooped, haggard man. He talks of peace. Francis is enamored with Elizabeth and offers to marry her. Ew, how old is he? He's stooped and haggard. (laughs) So... And how young is she? They keep calling her a child. Is she, like, 14? Yeah, she's probably about 14. Francis is enamored with Elizabeth and offers to marry her. It would bring peace, but she rejects the idea. Yeah. Also, I never knew that they had a choice in the matter, but okay. Oh, yeah, I know. (laughs) He also questions young Edward about his wishes. If his father dies in battle, is he prepared to rule? When the boy then opts for no war, Henry is mortified and (laughs) furious. He promises to get even with Francis the next time they meet. As Henry berates Edward for being meek, Elizabeth stands up to her father. He threatens her. They rail back and forth at each other. Henry banishes her from the court and condemns all who will speak to her with death. Privately, however, he loves her spunk, and he sings the song from afar. If I could, I'd bring you here to me, to have you near to me. It can't be done, yes. Tell me, child, why must there be in you so much of me in you and not my son, yes? When I behold your fire, when I behold your flare, then your presence becomes too painful for my dazzled eyes to bear. So, after listening to this, I realized two things. Firstly, it's the same melody as Away From You that was sung by Anne Boleyn Boleyn earlier. Mm -hmm. But I was like, there's another musical that has a very similar... Yeah, it's been bothering me, and I've been trying to figure it mm-hmm. out in the background, but did you figure it out? I have figured it out. Okay, crap. What and is it? it is from Gentleman's Guide. What is it? What is the it? The song is The Last One You'd Expect, and that's the name of the song. And it goes, look at him, no denying he's humble stuff, but it fills up his poor old heart when I see how he's done. Something like that. Yeah, it sounds very similar. Um, Almost... Exactly the same. <laughs> yeah. This is my favorite Henry song in the show. All right. I mean, this melody's good. It is. It's very grounded. does highlight his complicated relationship with Elizabeth. It's just, I'm so confused by him. He, he infuriates me. He's infuriated. We're infuriated. I'm sure that the lyricist was infuriated because he <laughs> wrote this song already. And then Richard Rodgers was like, wouldn't it be cool? If he sang the same melody that her mother sang about him. And he was like, yeah, it's great. (laughs) You don't have to write another song, but I do. (laughs) Thanks a lot. And it's very nice. (laughs) I mean, it's a beautiful song. For sure. Moving on. Will meets Elizabeth in a court corridor. 
In pantomime, he begs her to ask her father for forgiveness. It is futile. Henry does not want her in line for his throne. Ladylike, she craves flattery and wants to be told she is beautiful. When Will indicates she is a carbon copy of her father, she is enraged, kicks the jester, and then says how sorry she is and wonders about her future. He plays a charade, miming a ticking clock to indicate where she will find the answer, which is in time. The name of the song. Well, yay, another girl song. Yes. Same girl, though, fun fact. Yes. If her voice sounds familiar, it's because she also plays her mother. That's so... I'm my daughter, I'm my mother, I'm my daughter. (laughs) Though I'm anxious and uncertain, and I feel I'm in a maze. And before me and behind me, there is only mist and haze. In the clockwork, there's a promise that it's just a passing phase. And the mist will melt in time, and the haze will clear in time, and my doubt and fear in time will fade away. And in time, I'll behold what's hidden today I'll see in time I'll know in time I'll change in time and grow in time so today I'll do what I must and I'll put my faith and trust in time Okay, it's very cute, but before I forget, it reminds me of two other Richard Rogers songs. Which ones? So, Shall We Dance, just okay. the part with, On the clear understanding that this kind of thing should happen. Oh. That part. And it also a little bit reminds me of, I have confidence in sunshine. I can see that as well. Only in kind of the empowered women sort of way. This is definitely one of those songs. It is nice to see another solo female that's just not singing about a man because the other female solos have just been about Henry truth and I think she is mentioning Henry kind of in this but she's mentioning about how one day she's going to grow into her own yeah it's something different than what we've heard from this whole time but question yes is she on stage alone at this point or is there a jester miming all of this to there's her? a jester miming all of this to her so this is the women empowerment song and then you have this like derpy man on the side being a clock Yeah, and the audience is probably laughing at him. Yeah, like, actually, seriously, (laughs) can you imagine the audience just cackling during this number? That kind of takes away from her being like, I know who I am and Uh, who I want to be. Well, hopefully during those very important parts, he is completely still. He's not. And there's a light just on her face. That's not what's (laughs) happening. So it's kind of like the king and the minstrel and I (laughs) just only two people mm-hmm. which is funny because that's mary rogers i wonder if when she was writing that song she was thinking of her dad writing this song oh that's nice yeah komu is in his laboratory preparing two charts one labeled er edward rex oh i was gonna say elizabeth regina 
points to a brief reign. The other, also labeled ER, oh, okay. for Elizabeth Regina, predicts a 50-year rule. It is treason to predict the death of a prince, so Komu doesn't tell the king of his findings. Henry doesn't want to sail for France to fight until he knows that Edward will survive his latest illness. He tells Komu to mix one of his best brews. The wizard digs out an ancient potion. Because the king does not want to try it himself, Will gulps it down and begins a f- wild, frenetic dance of death, quote-unquote. The king roars, then appears to join the dance, but it is really a heart seizure. Ah! The king is carried out to his bedroom. He is deathly sick and asks for ER's horoscope. Komu tries to read it, but he can't let the words out. Henry grabs it, sees the prediction that his heir will reign for 50 years, the chief ornament of a glorious age. He looks from Edward to Elizabeth, disturbed, musing that he might have been reading her horoscope. He calls Elizabeth close, restores title of princess to her and Mary, then begs that Elizabeth watch out for her brother. He also confesses that he needs final rites from his old church, that he can't trust his immortal soul to the Church of England. I'm making a lot of faces. I also have to note that I was looking this up and I'm pretty sure this never happened. The Church of England that he formed, he was like, no, I don't trust it. I need to get last rites from a Catholic. That would really kind of... uh... Undermine his entire (laughs) religion that he established that is still in uh, practice today. Mm -hmm. So I'm pretty sure that didn't happen. The king is dead. Elizabeth and Edward are in the throne room, alone with the body of Henry VIII. She tells her young brother he must now show himself to his people that the throne is only a chair, and then sits on the throne to prove her point. As other members of the court enter, Elizabeth straightens the crown on Edward's head. Mary and Queen Catherine lead him towards the cheering crowd. Elizabeth remains on the throne and looks down upon her father's bier. Will and Komu, awed by the vision of her natural majesty, bow deeply to her. She is lost in her own thoughts, a young queen frozen in time. That leads directly to the finale slash te diem. Okay, but this is going to confuse a lot of Americans because she does not gain the crown at this time. That's correct. So Elizabeth doesn't become queen for 11 years. All right, shall we listen to the finale? Let's get to it.
nice triumphant finale. Ba -ba -da -ba. It's really kind of one note. I guess American audiences won't be confused because they really, really let you know that Edward is becoming the next king. They pop up from time to time, but this is like the big sound chorus. Yeah, I love it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a good way to end. For the show, it's definitely fitting. Mm-hmm. So we've been listening to some historical fiction, but now let's learn about some historical facts. Waka waka. <laughs> <laughs> so Sheldon Harnick wrote the lyrics of this show. He was born on April 30th, 1924 in Chicago to Jewish parents. Sheldon began writing music while in high school, and afterwards he was drafted into the army. It was in the army he had met Saul Lerner a theater agent who was in charge of the special service. Even though Harnick was part of a five-person team on the Signal Corps in charge of installing new landing gear, they had a lot of downtime, so Harnick assisted Lerner in auditioning performers for their weekly one-hour entertainment show. After he was discharged from the Army, he attended Northwestern University School of Music, where he graduated with a Bachelor's of Music degree and worked in Chicago orchestras. In 1949, he moved to New York to write in reviews, but made sure to look up his old pal from the army, Saul Lerner. Saul wasn't an agent anymore, but instead was the manager of his dancer wife, June Taylor, whose dancers were going to be featured on the new Jackie Gleason TV show. They still needed an opening jingle, and Saul knew who to recommend, and that's how Sheldon Harnick got his start in show business. He was friends with singer-actress Charlotte Ray, who sang one of his songs at the Village Vanguard, while Yip Harburg, music writer for Fuhuli, episode 11, was in the audience. Yip took a liking to him and connected Harnick with other composers. In 1956, when he was 32, he met Jerry Bach, who would be his most lasting partnership. Together, they would write the musicals Fiorello, The Body Beautiful, Tenderloin, She Loves Me, The Apple Tree, and The Rothschilds. More than half of these will probably be covered on future episodes. Their most lasting show is undoubtedly Fiddler on the Roof, which was the first musical to run for more than 3,000 performances. Sheldon Harnick won three Tony Awards, one for Fiorello and two for Fiddler and one special Tony Award for Lifetime Achievement. Additionally, Fiorello won a Pulitzer. Now, unlike a lot of the writers we talk about, he is still alive as of this recording at the age of 96 in 2021. Woop woop! <laughs> Sherman Yellen wrote the book for Rex. He was born in New York on February 25th, 1932. He went to Bard College and studied creative writing and received a master's in English literature at Columbia University. His first play, New Gods for Lovers, was produced at the HB Theater in New York. This got him recognition from the Hallmark Company, and he ended up writing a few TV movies for the Hallmark Hall of Fame in 1963 when he was just 31. For TV, he also wrote adaptations of Beauty and the Beast, Jekyll and Hyde, and Phantom of the Opera. None of these are musicals. For Broadway, his first credit is in the segment Delicious Indignities in O oh, Calcutta. His first full-scale musical, and only one other than Rex, was a collaboration with Sheldon Harnick and Jerry Bach, The Rothschilds. Outside of Broadway, because contrary to popular belief, not all musicals make it to Broadway or are even made to go to Broadway. He has written the book 
to the musicals Lucky in the Rain, Say Yes, This Fair World, and the book and lyrics to Josephine Tonight. More recently, he has been writing political op-eds for the Huffington Post. The next time we cover him, we will hopefully have read his autobiography Spotless that he released just a few years back. He too is still alive. Yay! He currently lives in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. So we've noted that Glenn Close is in the cast as Mary. But let's talk about the big guy, Henry VIII. He was played by Nickel Williamson. He was born on September 14, 1936 in Hamilton, Lanarkshire, Scotland, but moved to Birmingham, England, where he eventually attended the Birmingham School of Speech and Drama. After national service in the UK, he started acting in various regional theaters. He made his London debut in 1962 in a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream as flute at the Royal Court Theatre. His first big break came when he was just 28 years old when he was cast in the play Inadmissible Evidence, which transferred to Broadway. Also in 1964, he played Vladimir in Waiting for Godot on the West End, and in 1968, he reprised his role for the movie version. His most well-known film role, however, is Merlin the Magician in Excalibur, opposite the beloved Helen Mirren as Morgana. The two were cast because they had previously butted heads in a production of Macbeth, and the director thought this real-life antagonism would translate to the great tension on screen. Hostility seemed to follow Williamson like a dark cloud throughout his life, and it led to legendary confrontations and blow-ups. Let's share a few. There are many. <laughs> yes. This is just, it's truly a few. This is the highlight reel. <laughs> he hit producer David Merrick during the Philadelphia tryout of inadmissible evidence because Merrick fired the director and ordered the writer to cut 30 minutes of the play. Williamson flew into a rage and threatened to leave the country, but it turned out okay because this show won him his first Tony Award. <laughs> In 1968, he stopped in the middle of playing Hamlet, apologized to the audience, walked off stage, and announced his retirement. There is also something about him throwing a wine pitcher during this show, but it may have been on a different night. It may have been every night. In the early 70s, Nickel got tired of waiting backstage for his guest appearance slot on the Dick Cavett show, so he left in a huff, leaving Dick and guest Nora Ephron to vamp for 30 minutes of live TV. And Dick never forgave him. <laughs> in the late 70s, on set for a film in Budapest, Nickel was trying to make an international phone call, and the operator angered him, so he pulled the phone out of the wall and through a plate glass window. <laughs> Stacy Keach was brought on to fill the role. During this show, Rex, he slapped Jim Litton, who was in the ensemble during Curtain Call. Like most actors, Jim was chatting through Curtain Call and simply said, well, that's a wrap. And Nickel promptly turned around, told him never to speak to him that way again, and slapped him across the face. <laughs> it is thought that perhaps Nickel misheard Jim's aside as, well, that was crap. The world will never know. No. But either way, he slapped a man. <laughs> he slapped a man in Reno just to see him cry. <laughs> so I know you all are loving this segment. There are many, many more stories I'm sure we could dig up. But the last one we are going to talk about today occurred in 1991 when Nickel was 55 and playing John Barrymore in I Hate Hamlet, which is an amazing play, by the way, in my opinion. He was all around a bombastic actor to work with. 
directing his co-stars and improvising lines, but one fateful night, he did away with the fight choreography and struck his fight partner, Evan Handler, on the back with his broadsword. Handler immediately left the stage and quit the show. His understudy, Andrew Mutnick, took over Act 2 and the rest of the run. Gregory Peck and Elaine Stritch were also in the audience for that show. (laughs) Can you imagine their faces? (laughs) No. (laughs) He died at the age of 75 on December 16th, 2011. So, Nicole Williamson was definitely the biggest star in this show. But there are a couple more little gems that I'm sure you will appreciate. Tom Altridge, who played my buddy, Will Summers, was also in a show that we all know and love, Where's Charlie, as Mr. Spettigue. Now, the recording we have and that we played for you on episode 7, where we talked about Where's Charlie, does not have him in it. Mm Mm-mm. But if you actually want to hear him sing things, and you just want to hear him do more stuff, he is the original narrator slash mysterious man in the original cast of Into the Woods. I love it. Yay! (laughs) Also in the ensemble is the playwright Craig Lucas. His plays include Prelude to a Kiss. He has also written the book to an American in Paris, Amelie, and Light in the Piazza. And this is just the way my mind works, but it's interesting to think about the fact that Craig Lucas has worked with both Richard Rogers on this show and his grandson, Adam Gettle, on Light in the Piazza. How nuts is that? That's crazy. I wonder if he worked with Mary Rogers on anything. Well, maybe we should dig deeper to see if there is any point in time that he worked with Mary Rogers, too. And now to the part of the show where we actually do the most digging, where we talk about how and when this show got made. So, two years prior to Rex getting to Broadway, an article in the New York Times announced that Rex would be a new upcoming musical with Rodgers and Harnick, but they list the book writers as Jerome Lawrence and Robert Edwin Lee, a team that previously wrote Mame and Inherit the Wind. We don't know why or when they dropped out, but Harnick had written with Yellen six years prior on the Rothschilds, so that must be how he was brought on. Casting Henry VIII was a task. The producers asked Peter O'Toole, Rex Harrison, Albert Finney, and Richard Burton. All of those men said no for reasons unknown. Mm. I'm doing unknown in air quotes (laughs) because perhaps it was... Because with the subject matter, it was hard to create a likable, relatable character worthy of our sympathy when that person is a historic figure known for his disregard for human life who abused his power. I'm just saying. (laughs) The show Rex always only planned to touch on a few of the wives' stories. Its first problem, in my opinion. (laughs) It was created with the intent to put the internal struggle of a king on display, which I think we did see. Striking this balance of King Henry VIII was the fundamental problem of this show. And when a show is Broadway-bound and having issues in out-of-town tryouts, who you gonna call? Hal Prince! (laughs) That's right, Hal Prince, the script doctor, arrived and immediately went to work. He changed some of the characterizations of the wives. 
he changed certain scenes to rewrite Henry to give him more depth, like Henry cradling his daughter lovingly after becoming enraged that Anne Boleyn bore a girl. A new scene was added between Henry and Anne Boleyn when five-year-old Elizabeth walks in. They needed a child, and one of the chorus girls happened to have a five-year-old son with her <laughs> who had red hair. So they convinced him to play the role. This child only known as Sparky. That cannot be his real name. No. <laughs> refused to wear a dress. Sounds like a five-year-old. Mm -hmm. And a compromise was made for him to appear in a nightgown with the stipulation that no one was allowed to tell him he looked cute or pretty. <laughs> that is such a five-year-old boy thing to say. Truly. So Hal Prince also changed set pieces from being too gaudy or modern. He reworked the opening number and cut the beloved Henry song, Pairs on Anjou, where he laments getting old, which I think we can find for you and put on our Instagram. Yes. He added two new songs between Boston and New York. We don't know what songs they were. No clue. <laughs> it finally opened on Broadway, but it received mixed reviews. The New York Times was the guide for theatergoers, and they panned it. The only thing the Times reviewer actively liked was Nickel Williamson's acting, but said as soon as he started singing, all of his acting talent left him. <laughs> That's so mean. <laughs> the reviewer also made sure to state that Penny Fuller, who played Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth, mm -hmm. was serviceable, while tearing down the design of the show, calling it awful, tinsel chic, and gaudy. At least he called it chic. Yeah. He mentioned how the music felt disjointed and like, quote, an anthology of songs from Camelot that were ditched on the road. <laughs> I think you said something about Camelot. Actually, I think we both though. did during the course of I this show. I think we did. That is such a burn, though. I know. Oh, no. A fun fact, in addition to the regular concessions, they had a smaller version of the tent seen on stage set up in the lobby where they sold copies of the jewelry worn by the actors, manufactured by Bergdorf Goodman, ranging from $18 to $75. But if we take inflation into consideration in today's money, that's around $85 to $350 for essentially copies of costume jewelry. While this show closed, Harnick and Yellen believed in it and have rewritten it since, as recently as 2017. Yellen considers it, quote, the last great Richard Rogers musical and thinks it should live in the Rogers canon, which leads us to the rights. Who owns them? But first, we have to get through audition cuts. Yeah. Because structure is nothing if you just throw it out the window when curiosity <laughs> comes. So bear with as we delve into our audition cuts. Yeah. Would you like to go first? Sure. So the song that I chose is a Henry song, a Henry ballad. I'm choosing From Afar, where he sings about Elizabeth. Dear to me, your radiance blinds me best. And it reminds me best of what you're not. So to love you just as you are, I 
do like this song. I've mentioned before I like baritone things, even though I'm not a baritone sounding man sometimes. I strive to have my voice turn into this one day. Now, what roles to audition for with this song? I was thinking, hmm, King Arthur in Camelot? That is one. <laughs> I was even thinking Javert. Okay. I was even thinking Scar. Okay. The Lion King, yeah. All right. And then I think it would be funny if you use this song to audition for Gentleman's Guide and it would kind of confuse them, <laughs> maybe because it's the same melody. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but truly, I think this is a good cut. Yay. So my choice for an audition cut is Elizabeth's song, In Time. And the dawn will break in time. And what seems opaque in time, I'll understand. And what seems out of reach will be in my hand. I'll see in time, I'll know in time, I'll change in time and grow. Waits in the seed All the answers that I need Wait in time I love it. I love it so much. I want to put it in my book. And I'm not even a soprano. You this could it. be used for so many people. And Seriously. Obviously, it could be used for many Rogers and Hammerstein and Rogers in general girls. Mm-hmm. Like... Nellie in South Pacific, mm. Maria in Sound of Music, mm-hmm. Guinevere in Camelot. Mm-hmm. But it could also be used for Sarah Brown in Guys and Dolls. Oh. It's a fun song. Super fun. So now that we took that little detour to audition land, back to the mystery. Yes. Where do you get the rights? Who owns them? How can I put on this show? Well, we have no freaking idea. Mm-mm. Because, weirdly enough, even though this was written by Richard Rogers, it is not part of the R&H catalog that right now Concord Theatricals owns, which is weird. Yeah, I believe it is the only Richard Rogers show that is not on there. Let us know if you know any other ones, but it seems very weird mm-hmm. that it's not there. But you can contact Sherman Yellen and Sheldon Harnick directly because they have the rights and they might give them to you. They've done this show recent-ish, regionally. Yes. So rights are there to be given out. In Toronto in 2017, there was a successful production of this show. So I got so excited that we were finally at this segment that I didn't ask, should... This show still be produced. Now we know that you can produce it. It just seems like a little bit of a rigmarole. But ready, Mikey? Yes. One, two, three. Sure. Yes. I think you should do this show. Yeah. I want to see the rewrites. Oh, yeah. I think it would be really good for one of those classic theaters, like a Shakespeare theater. Yeah. That always does period pieces to do, to throw in... I feel like they always do one musical a year at Mm -hmm. those kinds of places. 
And they always end up doing Camelot or Man of La Mancha or something so they can reuse <laughs> the same stinking costumes. Yes. Which is totally legit. Save the budget. I understand you have a lot of doublets in stock and you need to use them. But why don't you take a chance? Yeah. And although throughout this podcast we've been referencing the musical Six, which if you haven't heard yet, you should check out. It doesn't mean there can't be two musicals using the same source material. They have wildly different perspectives. Yeah. Once you're allowed to do regional productions of Six, how cool would it be to have these in rep with each other? That'd be so That weird. I would be happy with because then the girls in Six could be in the ensemble and like play the f- very small women characters mm-hmm. in this show but be able to be stars in another show because i just feel like the women roles in this are just not big enough unless you're Anne Boleyn that could be a fun experiment yeah for a summer stock or something like that i would love it i can't stop thinking about it someone has to do this maybe the emergence of the popularity of six can lead to actual revivals of Rex. Maybe. I mean, it's the same amount of letters and they both end in X. (laughs) It's true. They would look really nice (gasps) on a poster together. I'm just saying. I love this idea. You should do it. I don't have the money (laughs) or the theater or the time. Well, if you can dream it, you can be it. Thanks, Frankenfurter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is all for today. Thank you so, so much for listening. Yes, thank you so much. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to hit the subscribe button and please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening right now. But only if it's nice. If you want to email us any suggestions, you can do that at buriedbroadway at gmail.com. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Buried Broadway. If you want to support the podcast and get some bonus content, become a patron for as low as $1 a month at patreon.com slash buriedbroadway. We really appreciate all of the support so far, not just from our patrons, but also from you, our listeners. Please help spread the word and tell your friends. What will we dig up next? Bye. Toodles. I know we just played you some songs from the show. But that doesn't mean we have the rights, you know. We're educating you and ourselves, you see. With musicals lost in history. So please don't call your lawyers. That would kill the vibe. We just want to make podcasts. And keep buried Broadway alive. At which time, Majesty will embrace King Francis, exchanging kisses on both cheeks. And I shall be sick before the cheering multitudes.